Hi, I'm Julia Bennett, and you're listening to Drinking and Joshing Torah with a Twist. And I feel like I'm back in my happy place. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. You know how Taylor Swift had a whole song because she was 22? Yes, I do remember that. Well, that might have been cool, but I have a whole episode just because I'm 34. Okay. Okay, maybe it's not really because I'm 34, but it is our 34th episode, which is really kind of a fun moment for us, especially because everybody is on the same path, going to the same place, right? Yeah, no, totally. Everybody totally ends up in the same place. Is that sarcasm? Yes, it was sarcasm. People end up in all sorts of different places, and two tribes don't even enter the land of Israel. Want to find out more? I'm excited to learn a little something. Let's go. excited when our podcast episodes line up with something that's happening in my life. And one of the things that's been going on for me this summer is this idea of clinical pastoral education, learning to be a chaplain in a hospital. And in doing so, we really needed to talk about goal setting. And one of my goals, one of the most important goals that I need to do as a professional was to learn how to set boundaries on my time and my empathy. And I think that's something that we might be coming across in this week's Torah portion, which is a very, very exciting moment. But setting boundaries isn't just a thing that chaplains do. It's also a really important part of being an excellent educator, classroom management, making sure that people are excited to be in the room, making sure that people feel safe so that they can best learn. And so for us, we're really, really excited today to be here with Samantha Vinegar Mainroth and with Julia Bennett. Dr. Samantha Vinegar Mainroth is a lifelong Jewish educator and learner, a native New Yorker. Woo, woo. Samantha has spent over 10 years educating Jewish teens and professionals around the world, working with populations in Israel, Washington, D.C., New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Samantha currently serves as the Associate Director of Adolescent Initiatives at the Jewish Education Center of Cleveland. She's an adjunct lecturer at Gratz College and co-hosts How Do You Jew?, the podcast. Samantha has been recognized as a 12 under 36 Jewish leader by the Cleveland Jewish News and regularly writes and consults on all things Jewy. Samantha is a reader, knitter, and a Shabbat dinner aficionado. She lives in Pepper Pike, Ohio with her husband, and Julia is going to be excited about this one, two beloved rescue dogs. Samantha, Julia, we are so, so happy to have you here. Welcome to Drinking and Drashing Tour with a Twist. Thank you so much for having us. So excited to be here. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. You know, I was thinking back on this episode, and it may be that Julia is our Q&A guest, but really, I was thinking how much I loved being in the land of Israel, living with Julia, somehow having you exist as a third semi-pseudo roommate that just walked in the door all the time, just like a Friends episode. And I couldn't help but think about Israel as a land. I mean, don't you think everybody wants to live there? I mean, some people do, but there are some people who don't even back before Israel was the land of Israel. But I thought that's what people were aiming for. Wasn't everybody heading in the same direction? They were, but they didn't all quite get there and they didn't really all want to. All right, look, I don't have a lot of time. So if possible, could you give me a quick rundown of this week's Parsha? I can certainly try. We start off with vows, basically keep your promises. Also, quick reminder, sometimes the Torah is wildly misogynistic and says things like, if a woman makes a vow but her father or husband disapprove, then it just doesn't count. Cool. Guess what? We're at war again. 12,000 troops descend on Midian and kill every man and all five kings of Midian, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba. Also, Balaam. So that's the warriors and the kings. What about everybody else? They took the people captive and took all their beasts and herds and stuff. They set fire to their towns. They brought all that they took to Moses at the steps of Moab. Moses was displeased. Because they went too far? Nope. You see, the whole reason for going to war was that the women were seducing the Israelite men. So Moses ordered the soldiers to kill all the boys that they had taken captive and any woman who had been with a man sparing only the female virgins. So after that lovely episode, they divide up the stuff they took. 
Half goes to the soldiers and half to everybody else. One in 500 items the soldiers take goes to the priests, as well as one in 50 that everyone else gets. And how much stuff was there? Well, we're still in numbers, so... 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 girls. The commanders of the soldiers realized that somehow, in all of this fighting, they didn't lose any men, so they gave a gift to God as thanks. 16,750 shekels of gold jewelry. Hey, what's that? It's the leaders of Reuben and Gad. There's been some talk about finally moving across the Jordan into the Promised Land, but Reuben and Gad didn't really want to go. They have cattle, and the land they're on is good for cattle. So they say to Moses, listen, give us this land and don't make us move. Moses replies, so you want your brothers to go to war while you sit around and do nothing? That doesn't sound right. So they respond, okay, how about we set up our towns and settlements here, get the family settled, and then send our troops to fight with you. Sounds good, Reuben and Gad. Just to recap, the Parsha gives its own distilled rundown of pretty much everything that's happened so far since they left Egypt. It's not 30 seconds. Cool. Oh, by the way, when you cross the Jordan, destroy all the idols and take all the land. Next, God draws a map. Kind of. We get borders of the land and a list of names. Sorry, Jason, not today. God commands the people to assign 48 towns for the Levites to live in and land for their animals. Six of those towns are cities of refuge. What's a city of refuge? Well, glad you asked. Let's say you kill somebody by accident. Now, just because it's an accident doesn't mean someone isn't going to be really mad and try to get revenge, so you run to a city of refuge where you can be safe until you stand trial. Reminder, though, the punishment for murder is death. If the assembly decides it wasn't murder, then you can stay in the city of refuge until the high priest dies, but if you leave, that angry guy is still allowed to kill you. But back to the death penalty for the murder, thing, there must be at least three witnesses to execute someone. Killing unjustly pollutes the land, and that's bad. Hey, remember the daughters of Zelophehad? Well, their dad died and left no sons, and the daughters wanted to inherit his land, and Moses wasn't sure, but God was like, heck yes! So now they get the land. They have to marry within their father's tribe, though, because land can't be passed from one tribe to another. And that's Parashat Matot Masay. That was amazing. I'm so impressed. <laughs> do we have a few excellent educators with us today. We also have some overlap between Samantha and myself. I know it's shocking for people who listen to this podcast to think that I would ever have anything in common with a guest. That's some sarcasm. A lot of the time I have some awesome things in common with guests. But one of the things that Samantha and I have in common is Gratz College. I actually have a master's certificate in Jewish nonprofit management from Gratz College, which was an incredible opportunity for me to learn when I was living in Philadelphia. And so Samantha... What are you teaching at Gratz? And what's the most fun thing that you've taught so far? My gosh. So I'm about to start teaching a class on um, educating Jewish teens. So really feeding into my wheelhouse and my target population. I'm teaching that for the master's program. But I think some of the most fun classes that I taught were for professional development purposes in the formerly known Gratz Next program, uh, which is where Jewish educators from around the country could zoom in before it was cool to do that, might I add, and learn for four weeks on different topics. So I did everything from teaching using Jewish food. I did teaching Israel through food. There was a lot of food involved at one point. And I had this like mini aspiration of starting my own Jewish cooking show. And then I realized that that was never going to happen. So I instead taught other people how to do Jewish cooking. It was great. And I also did Judaism and positive psychology. And that was really fun for me because it was largely an excuse to learn about positive psychology and then to figure out what were the Jewish twists. So I think for many educators, perhaps, or just me as a profoundly nerdy one, like I'll pick something to teach based on like, I want to learn that and have a good excuse for doing so. And then hope I did it correctly because then I somehow became authoritative about it. So whether you're teaching teens yourself or you're teaching other people how to teach teens or you're teaching other people about Jewish education more generally or Jewish positive psychology, what grounds your work or what sparks your work? What inspires you? What values? What drive? Uh, yes, and I feel like that's my initial answer. I think that part of what grounds me in the work that I do in Jewish education, fun fact, I've heard that we like those on this show, and I don't know if this has come up beforehand, there's no word in the Hebrew language for history. The word that's used is historia, which is like not technically a Hebrew word, but an approximation of 
I think it's a Greek word, but instead in Torah and in other spaces, the word that is used is zachor or memory. And this idea that we're all part of this collective story and that history isn't linear when you're Jewish, but we're all engaging across time, across space. We're engaging through ritual. We're engaging through communication. We're engaging through how we enter and behave in the world is so inspiring to me in almost like a mystical way. So that's the meta, like big picture why. And then on a practical level, I look back at my own growing up years and especially having been a slightly awkward, I think we can all just own that, Jewish teen. A huge part of where I found myself was in Jewish spaces. That in my public school, I was decidedly not cool. But then you like go away on a Shabbaton and somehow the things that make you not cool in your public school are like sought after qualities in Jewish life. And I found my mentors there. I found the people who challenged me and who excited me and who made me think outside of myself. And when it came time to then say, okay, so what am I going to do? I couldn't think of anything better than to hopefully be that person for somebody else. So it sounds like there's a lot of modeling. And I know that in our Torah portions, we're reading a lot about how difficult it is to model good leadership and what that might look like. I mean, even in this portion of lands to all of our tribes, trying to figure out what goes where can be really challenging and kind of fraught. I think that even in education, when we're trying to make sure that we're something to everybody, sometimes we end up being nothing or we end up lacking. And so I'm curious how you combat that in the work that you're doing. That's such a good question, because when you started your question, I was thinking more about the physical aspect of how you set things up. And I went in a pre-COVID world, I was in this like very intense crusade about what it means to claim Jewish space. Because I found that especially for those of us who work with high school students or those of us who work in supplemental settings, regardless of age, so much of space is kind of an up in the air thing. You might be in a repurposed nursery school classroom that somebody hopefully remembered to bring adult sized chairs to. And if not, then like you're just going to sit on the floor and that's part of the fun. And owning and claiming what does it mean to set up a space in a meaningful way, I think is vastly overlooked, but something so important. So I think when it comes to this idea of if we're for everyone, we're essentially only a watered down version of ourselves. And I think part of what is amazing is there are so many opportunities right now, especially in a COVID world, we're no longer bound by geographic location. In a lot of ways, we're not bound by time because literally everything is recorded. And there's really a chance to hone in for each of us on what we do well, instead of reinventing the wheel. And I am a pusher in these regards because I'll constantly say to my colleagues about things that I deeply care about. Hopefully all of us deeply care about, whether it's civic engagement or social action or, you know, whatever it might be. It's amazing. Our teens should be learning this. Our learners of all ages should be engaging with these topics. But if we're going to do something as a Jewish community, I'm constantly wanting to know what's the value add? Like what makes this Jewish? Which is probably why I'm like not a youth director anymore because I'm not fun enough because I'll say it's awesome that we're going to play laser tag. I am great at laser tag. I get like oddly aggressive about it. But unless we're going to have a conversation perhaps related to this Parsha of like, what does it mean to invade a space? (laughs) And how do we connect this to Judaism? Then my answer is like, if a teen wants to go play laser tag, they'll figure it out. I think that when someone enters into a space where I am educating or if I'm asked to consult about something, I'm just constantly striving to find what is the unique aspect of this that makes this a Jewish lesson rather than an awesome or fun or mundane thing that just like Jews are doing. I so appreciate that question of how do we define something as being Jewish. As a cantorial student, one of the things we've spoken about a lot is what makes Jewish music Jewish. Is it just one of those weird modes? Is it just a certain sound? Is it being sad? Does it have to be in Hebrew? Does it have to have certain things? Does it have to have certain words? If other words are in it, does that make it not Jewish? And it turns out that it's actually much easier to define what is sacred music or what is religious music than it is to define what is Jewish music. 
And I think the same applies in these activities that you're talking about. In laser tag, for example, I'm sure you could find a way to make it Jewish. But at the same time, if it's a group of Jews playing laser tag, it's Jewish laser tag because it's Jews doing it. That's my opinion anyway. No, on some level, I 100% agree with you that if it's a group of Jews doing it, it becomes a Jewish event. But I'm always kind of trying to push for, but what's the next level? Because I'm here as a Jewish educator. So when my friends and I, again, socially, I, I tend to hang out with a lot of Jews. Shocking. If we're hanging out around a bonfire as a group of Jews, sure, you know, that's my social life. That's my Jewish friends. That's my Jewish circle. And it's great. If we then say, guys, we're all having some camp nostalgia in our 30s because we haven't gotten over certain things. Let's make this a sing-along. Let's do it on a Saturday night and do Havdalah. Like then for me, it's intentionally Jewish as opposed to just these are my friends and we all have really curly hair. So to be intentional about this, we've been talking about your values. We've been talking about your work. We've been talking about what drives you. And we've been talking about this idea of making things Jewish or seeing the Judaism in things that might not be apparently Jewish. I'm wondering if you could bring the Torah portion in for us, if you could talk to us about where you see those themes or your work or your values, either in this Torah portion or maybe contrasted or challenged in this Torah portion. So as you shared in the kind of 30-second rundown of this Torah portion, there are so many different elements to it, and some of them I am innately drawn to. I love anything about the daughters of Zalopachad. I think that's like such a cool feminist interlude, and I like that we're able to see here the story come to its natural conclusion and wrap up that these amazing trailblazing women had lobbied and advocated for themselves, and now we see like they weren't forgotten and they got what had been promised to them. So that I'm drawn to. I'm drawn to the complexities of what happens with God and Ruvain and Truzing lands outside of the promised land of Israel. But I also do want to note so much of this Torah portion, I think the instinct of so many Jewish educators is to kind of not want to talk about because there's a lot of bloodshed. There's a lot of commandment to shed blood. So it's not even like, oh my gosh, one of these many incidents where the people went rogue and we can say that, oh, whoops, but they weren't living up to Jewish values. Well, no, this is like a very specific commandment to go slaughter all these people. And what do you do with the virgins? And what do you do with the livestock? And what do you do with the leaders? And it becomes one of those things that it's just so much easier to say, this isn't a storytelling Torah portion. We'll just kind of gloss over this and like, if it was someone's B'nai Mitzvah portion, hope that the Haftarah has something profound to say because we don't want to deal with some of these topics. And I want to make sure that I still say something about them, even though it's challenging. So here's my thought. When I was reading through in preparation for this episode, I was thinking a lot about trauma and collective trauma and how the Israelites, the people at this point, have been wandering in the desert for quite some time, and they've had a lot of atrocities happen to them, that they came from this collective experience of slavery and victimization, and then they've done the wanderings, and they've been punished, and they've been punished for reasons they understand and reasons they don't understand, and they've been attacked by Amalek, and they've had a really hard time. And in no way is that meant to justify the victimization of others. But I think there's something to be said about when these like collective tragedies happen. Because again, we don't have history, we just have memory. So on some level, we're all embedded with all of this collective trauma. People respond in really different ways. And this is like nerd deep hole right here. But I was thinking about it in the context of the Pew report that came out in the month of May, even though it's now 2021. And we saw in this report that over 75% of Jews listed remembering the Holocaust or commemorating the Holocaust as a key factor in their Jewish identities. And that was the most common thing. There's nothing else that was that common to that many Jews in terms of how do we vote? How do we practice Judaism? Do we keep kosher? What denominations are we part of? But like by far and away, remembering our most recent collective trauma is something that unites the vast majority of Jews. And I was thinking about how that then manifests in different ways. I feel like there are people 
who have taken this collective trauma and looked internally and said, we need to double down and care about ourselves and protect the Jewish people and Jewish continuity and Jewish education and identity and pride and all these different things coming from this sense of someone tried to take this away from us. We need to look at ourselves and care for ourselves. And that's so deeply legitimate. And then a whole other group of people said, let's look externally because we know what it is to be victimized. We know what it is to be totally vulnerable to external forces. And we need to do tikkun olam and we need to be allies and we need to look instead of towards the particularism to go towards universalism and say, how are we going to be this light in the world and do better than what was done to us? And both of these are deeply legitimate means of responding to collective trauma. Neither of those, of course, are like slaughtering people. And I would hope that we could all say like, that's no longer a legitimate response to a collective trauma. But when I was thinking about when these people were entering this land and knowing the last time that they went somewhere, it was to Egypt and they were subjugated for hundreds of years. And then they were wandering around and stateless and didn't have any sense of security. And then there's this moment of we're almost there. Like I can I can literally see what was promised and now I want to make sure it stays mine. I think there's so much to unpack about what that means in terms of, again, it's, it's very easy when you're not the one in power to say, this is what I would do. But how do we, from a modern lens, then say, what do you do when you have the opportunity to either enter into a new space or then to be the power players in that space? So I'm going to push us a little bit away from war and trauma. And I was thinking about this thing that happens, I think, often in school and especially in classrooms, that what you say matters and how you say it matters. Matzot starts off by talking about if we make a vow or if we make a commitment, right? This idea of ish ki yidor neder, that if a a person, I'm going to translate it the way I want to, really makes a super vow, laronai, to God... Or if he really takes this oath, imposing some sort of commitment onto himself or onto herself or onto themselves or onto the person, there's this idea that he's not supposed to break this pledge. He's not supposed to break this commitment or the person shouldn't break this commitment. That he shouldn't go against his word. And I'm thinking about that a lot, especially in an education setting of what we say matters and how we say it matters and the commitments that we make in a classroom or in a laboratory, even if it's a living laboratory, like experiential education. And this idea of whether we're talking about trauma or we're talking about teamwork, what we say matters and how that works into the work that you're doing now and how it might matter that we even say the hard words you know, the stories that are difficult to share and the stories that are difficult to relive and how that might impact what you're doing today. I think part of what it means to like make these kinds of commitments is essentially saying that I'm going to show up and I'm going to show up as my full self and I'm not going to make excuses for any of it. I think that especially in educational environments and especially in experiential ed or supplementary education, a huge part of the vow that we're making is to commit to being present. And that becomes, for some people, really challenging. Again, I do not envy any of today's Jewish teens in terms of how many commitments they have, the number of programs, especially in this world of COVID. On the one hand, so many educators saw more people showing up than ever before because the commute went away. So you didn't have to figure out how to, after you know sports practice, somehow shower and eat dinner and make it to your Hebrew high school or youth group or whatever it is you were doing, like you could be eating at the same time and not have to have changed your clothes and whatever it is. And so some ways that was great, but in other ways we lost something in terms of what does it mean to commit to each other and to have that accountability of being present with and for one another. 
and I think that's where the actually the positive psychology and like the relational engagement piece in so many ways comes in in terms of the intentionality, both of the words that we're using and of just what it means to step into a space and to acknowledge who's there and who's not there. Um, I'm probably an overly check-in person that if I don't see you, I don't want to just assume, oh my gosh, she had sports practice or he has APs or any of the like deeply legitimate things going on in someone's life. I'm the first person to hopefully not awkwardly and not embarrassingly, not to say, oh, I'm calling you out that you missed something today, but to want to acknowledge that your presence and your words matter. And if they're not there, something happened and is different about the conversation. And I just want to check in and make sure that, you know, when we've all made a commitment to be in a space, we're committing not just to ourselves, but to one another and to co-creating that space and that community together. So speaking of being in a space together and being present or not being present, that's also a big theme in this Torah portion, this idea of who's coming into the land, who's willingly choosing not to, and who, even though they're not entering the land, is still staying committed to their people who are going into the land. I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit and about how you might relate those two ideas. So yeah, this Torah portion is really interesting in that as far as I'm aware, hope I'm not missing something, and you guys have been reading every week, so you'll know better than me. It's really this first time that we're seeing what I'm calling an intentional choice to be in the diaspora. So this isn't an exile. It's not again, being stuck in Egypt or wandering or being kept out of the land. But two tribes make a calculated move to say, we're going to give up the whatever portion of Eretz Yisrael, of the land of Israel that was promised for our use, and essentially trade it for these spaces on the other side of the Jordan River because the land is good, the grazing is good, and just we're happy where we are. And I think that's ultimately the difference between a diaspora and an exile. An exile wasn't your choice. An exile is a state of victimhood and of statelessness. And it's a space that people don't want to be in versus an intentional choice to say, I know that I could be over there, but I'm over here because it's a value add to my life to be here because this is where my family has decided that we're comfortable because there's a resource here that I didn't have otherwise. But then the members of these two tribes, specifically the men, we'll say, then have to figure out, well, but what's my commitment to the rest of the family? In this case, the family being the 12 tribes and the, the collective Israelite nation or peoplehood. And to really ask the question, so if I've decided to stay on this side of the Jordan, which geographically is still relatively close proximity, we're not necessarily talking about huge distances, but these people did manage to wander for 40 years. So like there's geographic stuff happening. To then have to say, does this mean I'm separating myself? Or does it mean I have to really rethink what is my role and what is my commitment? And in the case of God and Ruvain, they're basically saying, we're not like shirking our responsibilities here. We are still going to be part of whatever battle is to come. Our troops are still going. Our soldiers are still going. And only once the rest of the land has been divided and given to whichever tribe is supposed to be in any given space, then we'll return to our wives and our children and our flocks on the other side of the river. So it's very like technical and tangible. We're still committed. We're giving you, you know, potentially our lives because we're going into battle. And when we think about the Jewish community today, I think there are so many questions in terms of what does it mean to be part of the collective Jewish people, the collective Jewish community. And we can have the conversation in so many different ways. And I think many of us are in terms of Israel and diaspora. And in previous generations, it was more of a one-sided relationship that American Jews gave philanthropic dollars or went to volunteer to help out in Israel. And now the tide is changing and it's more of a mutualistic relationship. One of the hats that I wear is I supervise the Cleveland community Shinshinim. Shinshin is an acronym for Shnat Sherut, which means year of service. And it's for high school grads who decide to take a gap year between high school and enlisting in 
the Army. They have numerous opportunities to volunteer and to study and to do leadership programming, both in Israel, but also in the diaspora. So six of them this year are being sent to Cleveland, Ohio. They're also being sent to other communities around the world. And there's a back and forth. We are learning from them. We are putting them to work and having them work as madrichim and as educators in our day schools, in our supplementary schools, in our youth groups, in the Israel culture clubs and public schools. Really, yes, and like if there's anywhere for a person to be, we have a sheen sheen there. But at the same time, they are learning also. In many cases, it's their first exposure to what does it mean to be intentionally not an Orthodox Jew and for that not to be just, oh, I'm Chiloni, I'm secular, but to have pluralism, to have multiple streams of Judaism and expressions of Judaism that people deeply feel committed to. I hear from our Shinshinim every year things that they're shocked by, that they're shocked by certain things about our community's commitment to Israel, that when they go to the JCC and they see an American flag and an Israeli flag, and they're just like, why is this here? So instead of it being we're giving and someone else is receiving or someone else is giving and we are receiving, there's this mutualistic relationship that I think really stems from this question that's asked in this week's Parsha of, so if you're not choosing to be physically where we are, how do we maintain this bond of peoplehood? And it also goes beyond an Israel diaspora relationship to then say, you know, what does it mean in a Jewish community if you choose to opt in and to be a member and to be very much like within a bubble of Judaism? Or if you're not necessarily in certain Jewish spaces, do you still have a responsibility to that community? And I think especially for millennials, for Gen Z, that sense of responsibility, how it manifests might be changing, but there are still these deep links and bonds that stem from these kinds of questions and conversations. We want to give you and Julia all the time we can uh, for you to have your conversation. Um, but before we go, if you had one message, one kernel of wisdom, one call to action that you wanted to share with your listeners today, what would that be? I think the call to action that I would want to share is to really ask everyone to think about what it means. How do you do? How do you do Judaism? How do you Jew as it uh as it were. And what would be different about it if you saw yourself as part of this collective story, as part of this collective memory? Again, if we're saying that Jewish peoplehood and connections aren't necessarily linear, but there's this inherent sense of connectivity um, across time, across space, how would your Judaism be different? Would it change? Would it be exactly the same? And really to just ask everyone when we think about our Jewish journeys, to really explore it through the sense of being part of something greater than ourselves, to be part of whatever the Jewish people looks like for you, whatever part of Judaism has been your entry point or perhaps not yet your entry point, maybe brings a value add to you. What does it mean if you're part of a bigger story? and to do something that honors whatever that question brings up for you. There's a gibasaur, comes right in the door, doesn't knock at all. Oh, hi, Gabe. Hey. Gabe, do you remember when Julie and I lived together and you just came inside all the time? Yeah. Okay. Well, now she came into our house, into this podcast house, and I'm so excited to get to introduce her today. Um, no, you're not. But she she was my roommate. Yeah, but she's my roommate more, but not really. I'm so confused. Cool. Julia has a BA in Jewish studies from Clark University, where she studied under Everett Fox and her master's in religious education from Hebrew Union College, where she studied with Amanda and Gabe, both of whom believe she is a wonderful, wonderful person. She is the new religious school assistant director at Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in Manhattan. She loves Glee, friends, both the TV show and people, animals of all kinds, and vegan baking. Welcome, Julia. You're the best. Handing you the mic. Thank you so much, Gabe. And thank you, Amanda, for having me. And for that wonderful introduction, Gabe. I really appreciate it. Okay, so I think this is the part where I ask Samantha questions. So I was also drawn to the bloodshed in this parsha and it brought up a lot of questions. And I actually 
looked at it a little differently. I was wondering what your thoughts are on how we can reconcile with God's desire for bloodshed in the parasha, not just the people's bloodshed actions. I think this is a really complicated question when it comes to what does it mean when your leadership has made a choice, either in a current moment or a moment in history, that your modern sensibilities no longer reconcile with and agree with. And I think it could be used actually as a really interesting jumping off point for like those kinds of conversations that the God of Tanakh had a different personality role than the manifestations of divinity that many of us might think of in our prayer practices or meditation practices or what we want to think of as the guiding force and thing that's greater than us that drives us in our lives and connects us with one another and really exploring. So what does that mean and how does that manifest for us today? How do we reconcile our understandings of divinity with what might have been the thing that drove our ancient forefathers and mothers in terms of questions of wanting their deity, their manifestation of God to be one that was protecting them and empowering them and giving them this sense of strength. Thank you. So going on a completely different direction. So we were talking about being fully present in an educational setting, in our parasha. So what does it mean to you to be fully present? I think part of being fully present is to be completely satisfied with the moment. I can speak, I hope collectively, but I'm definitely just speaking for myself when I say, I think I spend 90% of my mental energy either in the past or the future. Um, Either I am working on my to-do list for what's to come and being nervous about what's to come or planning for whatever's to come or having like a flashback to the like awkward thing that I said and oh my gosh, if I only had another minute, it would have been such a profound comment. But instead, like my high school self was weird. And those moments when the past isn't what I'm thinking about, or the future, and I'm just present are really what comes to mind. A lot of times, there's something about being in a space that's fully immersive, and immersive in a way that's external to who I am as a human being, because if I'm just in my head, I'm probably in the past or the future versus if I'm caring for someone, if I'm with my dogs, um, if I am fully immersed in what I'm reading or what I'm knitting, um, if I'm in a especially a Jewish shared space, whether it's a song space where it feels like just this moment is enough and it doesn't have to be what's happening in 20 minutes and what's my next responsibility and it doesn't have to be oh my gosh, you know, that email that I crafted my response to and like probably didn't grammar check, but just this moment that we are in being enough. Thank you. And uh, you mentioned responsibility. So that leads me to my last question. We were talking about being in the diaspora versus being in exile and the two tribes sending their troops, even though they weren't in the land of Israel. So today... Speaking for yourself, what is your responsibility in the diaspora? That's such a good question. (laughs) There's so many answers. And I think the answers have changed for me over time. I remember being in college, especially, um, and being told that if I wasn't in Israel, then my responsibility as an active Jew and as a Zionist was then to be a voice for Israel. And that was um, the responsibility of myself and my peers to be voices and advocates and activists. And I very much internalized that message. And to some extent, I think I still very much feel like if I am here and not in Israel, if I'm an intentional diaspora Jew, then my role is to be an advocate. I'm a Jewish educator. And I think part of my role is to empower my learners, whoever they might be and wherever it is, that I meet them along their Jewish journeys to feel proud of their Judaism, to feel like they are enough in their Jewish identities that we're not going to have the conversation of, are you a good Jew? Are you enough of a Jew? Are you half a Jew? But to say you are fully whomever you are, you are your intersectional self. And part of my role is to meet you on your Jewish journey and to be in relationship with you as you move towards whatever the next step is whether it's a step forward, a step to the side, some kind of diagonal leap. Um, I think the responsibility of educating uh, Jewish learners of really all ages and stages 
is a profound one for me um, and one that I've been really proud to take on. Great answer. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, we're so excited for Midrashic Mixology, a fan favorite every week. In honor of the grazing cattle of Reuben and Gad and their desire to stay on their side of the Jordan, we proudly present The Grass is Greener Gimlet. In a cocktail shaker, muddle together about a quarter of a cup of chopped cucumber, five large mint leaves, and one ounce of simple syrup. Fill the shaker with ice and add in two ounces of vodka and one ounce of fresh lime juice. Shake and strain into a coupe glass and garnish with a sprig of mint. For a non-alcoholic version that's just as green and just as delicious, switch out the vodka for two ounces of club soda, just stir instead of shaking. Enjoy this drink, but remember your responsibility toward the rest of your people. Also, this drink, though inspired by grazing cattle, should not be consumed by animals. Lechayim. I want one right now. I'm so excited to make this. I'm not sure if it's true that the grass is always greener on the other side. I mean, it's looking pretty sweet from where I'm sitting. But, unfortunately, we've made it to the thank yous and closing cues section. We're almost at the end of this episode. And so, Samantha, Julia, Gabe, Idan, and Matot Mase, we have our first experience with Diaspora Jewelry, or kind of a glimpse of it. But they promise to ensure to help out for those staying in Israel. How do you think this plays out today? What's it like to be Jewish who's Laaretz outside the land? And how do we make these Jewish identities work for us? Idan, we're going to shake things up and we'll start with you. That's a very interesting idea to start with me, Amanda. So I think that um, it's very interesting because we, as American Jews, speaking for myself, I don't know if this applies to everybody else, but as an American Jew, I feel like I have an obligation to vouch for Israel and the Jewish people. And that's what I try to do. But then there's also the balance of they don't always do everything right. So finding that balance of respecting and keeping that love for them, for the Jews who are there and the nation itself, while also holding them accountable to do the right thing. In light of keeping things a little bit different than we normally go, Julia, we'll go with you next. I think we have to work a little harder to hold on to our Jewish identity in the diaspora. I remember from living in Israel and living in Jerusalem that Judaism is everywhere. And obviously not everybody in Israel is Jewish, but they make it really easy to be Jewish there. And when you're in the diaspora, you kind of have to represent and you have to work a little harder and you need to not be afraid to be Jewish and make a little effort, whatever that means for you. It's not going to be the same thing for everybody. Obviously, we don't all have to do do Jew. Is that Samantha's thing? Do Jew the same way. <laughs> but, you know, we have to try. You know, they, they say that trying is half the battle or that might be knowing is half the battle. It's one of the two of those things. But enough for me. Samantha, what you got for us? I echo a lot of what Julia said, especially about there needs to be some effort when you're in the diaspora. I grew up with an Israeli father and an American mother. So I had a very personal relationship with Israel from as far as I can remember, essentially. And I remember one of the things being, I realized I didn't like spending Passover in Israel, even though that's everyone else's favorite time to go because it's so easy. Because you essentially don't have to do anything. Every restaurant is open. They have kosher for Passover bread, which I learned is not matzah, but legit kosher for Passover bread, which I still have many, many questions about. And it's great. It's so much fun. You basically don't even realize the Passover is happening. But I really missed it. I missed the experience of being in the diaspora and that being the week where like we went to the zoo with our own matzah and felt like I know that I'm different. I know that I'm doing something that connects me and that's intentional and that I have to work for it a little bit. So I think there is the effort, there is the intentionality and figuring out what's the yes and kind of beauty of what it means to be in Israel and part of the majority and Judaism is just the atmosphere in many spaces that's around you, albeit it might be a different form of Judaism than you would expect. And then in the States to that or wherever one lives to figure out how do I create that atmosphere, whether intentionally, unintentionally, and figure out how I do. I think there's a lot to be said about how we make holy spaces out of any area that we might take part in or, you know, make a home from. Gabe, your turn, buddy. One of the things that I want to suggest 
and this won't necessarily be a popular opinion, but one of the things that I want to suggest is that even those who live in Israel today, even those who live in Jerusalem, are still in the diaspora. The reason I say that is that the exile happened, the temple was destroyed, and we spread out all over the world. We came to all of these different places. We developed different cultures, different languages, different foods, different ideas, different traditions. And at some point, some Jews all converged back into this place. And it was the same place geographically, but it wasn't the same spiritually. There's still a difference between Jerusalem today and Jerusalem of 70 CE. And so I think that my point is, we're not there yet. And we all need to work toward, including those in Israel, we all need to work toward that time where we can all, as a Jewish people, regardless of where we are geographically in the world, say we've reached that Yerushalayim Shel Mala, that Jerusalem above, that Jerusalem that will come when we reach that messianic age, when we reach that age of enlightenment, of perfection. And that age, in my opinion, only comes when, like Julia and Samantha said, when we work for it, when we put in that effort. So it might be easier to live on Jewish time when you're in Israel, but I still suggest that it's not quite not in the diaspora. We're all still a little bit in exile. I appreciate that. And I'm going to push back just on one area. I think that we are in the diaspora. I think that, you know, there's this separation between what those people in the land feel, what those people out of the land feel. I want to give a shout out to Jacob Kranitz, mostly because on the day that we're recording it, it is his birthday, but also because Jacob explained to me when he was working as a Hillel Israel professional that it is impossible for most people to make a differentiation between the land of Israel and the Jewish people. He explained that they are tied in a way that is almost impossible to separate them unless you are very aware of the intricacies that are involved within and you're very aware of the nuances that lie without. And so I think for me, I really enjoyed what Samantha had to say before about this idea of advocacy when you are outside that you can be an advocate, you can be an ally, like you can even be a critic if you want to be. But I think there is this idea of you take action in some way, whether it's taking a backseat and being supportive of people, whether it's, you know, heading to the land itself to try to make it the best possible place that it can be, or whether it's allowing yourself to sit and listen and learn and ask the right questions. I think there's a lot to be said about engaging in important conversations about what Israel is and and what our lives outside that land might look like and what our responsibilities to each other might look like if we really believe this idea of Kol Yisrael Aravim this idea that all of Israel is responsible for one another. But as I said, there are a lot of conversations around the topic. And so Samantha, Julia, if people want to continue the conversation, how might they be able to find and follow you? Samantha, we'll start with you. Sure. So you can find me. Um, my website is samanthavinacorminerat.com. I'm not going to spell that whole thing, but you, I'm sure you'll figure it out. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram at sam underscore vinacor. I got that one before I was married. And you can listen to my podcast, which is How Do You Jew, and can be found anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Incredible. And all of that will also be in the show notes. Julia? I don't have as much of a social media presence, so if you want to be in touch with me, you can email me at jbennett, two N's, two T's, at swfs.org. That's like Stephen Wise Free Synagogue, swfs.org. She'll especially like it if you send her a friends or glee quote, and she will probably be your friend gleefully once that happens. Heavily on the glee. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Samantha, Julia, any last words, thoughts, concerns, or jokes? I have nothing to contribute about glee, but I did win first prize in a friends trivia competition several years ago. So I don't have any jokes, but I do have a quote that at one point Chandler is asked to tell a joke. And he says, I don't have any jokes, but can I interest you in a sarcastic comment? And I am always here for the sarcastic comment. And I just want to say that I love Amanda and Gabe so much. 
And I'm so happy that they finally invited me on drinking and droshing. And I also really, really miss our drinking and droshing in Jerusalem where we actually drank and droshed in person. I hope to do that again someday. Thank you so much to Samantha for being incredible with some snark, sarcasm, and most importantly, some really specific takes on how we can take this Torah portion into real life. To Julia for being my forever roommate and also one of the co-creators of Drinking and Droshing in Jerusalem, 2018-2019, year in Israel, what, what? To Gabe for being our fake third roommate because realistically he ate all of the food in our fridge. We never really quite knew where it went to, but it went to, you guessed it, Gabe. And to Edan because even though Julia gave Gabe and I a shout out, she also loves you and saw you yesterday. I do love Edan. I do love Edan. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you also to everybody that's listening in, and especially this week to Kate for putting up with our silliness and editing this episode. We're so excited to learn with you. We're so excited to learn from you and can't wait to connect next week. As someone who's been in the fields of education for 20 plus years, I really appreciated the takes that Samantha and Julia brought to the table. This idea of really trying to be present in a moment where it can be difficult to know where you belong, especially when you're either talking about difficult topics or if you're feeling a little bit distanced from what's supposed to be your homeland, except you're feeling at home right where you are. You know, I think that's true. I think there's a growing divide between Israel Judaism and world Judaism, diaspora Judaism particularly American Judaism. And I think part of that is that there's a lot of antagonism, in my view, coming from certain parts of Israel toward progressive streams of Judaism that are based in or strongest in the United States. That said, I think one of the things that reminded me of how insignificant that gap is between Israel Jewry and American Jewry was that just after the collapse of the condo building in Surfside, Florida, just outside of Miami, Israel sent search and rescue workers from the IDF. And immediately there was this outpouring of support from the highest levels of government, from uh, the prime minister, from the foreign minister, from the minister of diaspora affairs, all the way down to regular citizens were posting on Facebook, were calling their American friends and asking how they were doing. There really is a connection between uh, Israeli Jews and American Jews, even those who have never met each other, even those American Jews who have never been to Israel, even those Israeli Jews who have never met an American. Kol Yisrael Aravim Zelazeh, as you said, all of Israel is responsible for one another. And that moment, seeing those IDF search and rescue workers walk off the plane That exemplified that for me. Look, I mean, it happened in the Bible with the tribes of Reuben and Gad. This idea of even if we're not there, we're there for you. And I think that those commitments, whether it's in Mato or Masse, or whether we're living it in modern day Judaism as it is now, when we give our word, when we make a commitment, we're really aiming to stay true to it. And to all our listeners, we always aim to stay true to you and to commit to you each week with a different take on a Torah portion and how to translate it into real-life tactics. And we hope you enjoyed this real-life laboratory of educators, cantors, rabbinical students, and, of course, our HUC-adjacent best friends. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we raise our glass to you. L'chaim. L'chaim. My name is Samantha Vinokur Meinrad, and you are listening to Drinking and Droshing Torah with a Twist. I'm having a lot of retroactive FOMO for whatever happened on this year in Israel.